We are in a series called Summer at Victory, uh, and the idea and the heart behind it is to have some different voices uh, from some of the pillars in our congregation, in our church, uh, bring the word each Sunday. It's been an incredible thing, been a blessing to me. Uh, I know you guys have already told me how much you love it, and that hurts my feelings just a little bit, all right? That's what it does. No, I am, I am the biggest fan. This has been on my heart for a few years now, um, that we would have this opportunity to hear from different perspectives, different wisdom stores, different walks with Christ, that they have lived the life and they're able to share with us. And so I have just been so honored uh, to introduce each of the speakers during this month. It's been an incredible time for our church, an uh, incredible time I know for you guys to learn. And so today's speaker is Jason Fountain. Uh, Jason is, if you don't know, he is the superintendent of the central school system here Um, right next to the church coming out onto this side. And so you can imagine thousands and thousands of students and faculty, uh, teachers, parents, come on somebody that he leads and leads well. And so I've had opportunity. Yeah, come on. We can honor that. I've had an opportunity uh, to see Jason in so many different circumstances, and the way that he leads has been an inspiration to me. Uh, it's been an encouragement to my own life to see the way uh, that he interacts with families and with people, the way that he loves them, even when they don't treat him the way he deserves to be treated. And so I've had an opportunity kind of behind the curtain uh, to see some of the things that he has led through, some of the different uh, situations and scenarios uh, and seasons of the world and things that he has done and the way that he has led with integrity, the way that he has followed God, the way he has treated people probably way different than I would have treated them. Come on, somebody. I probably would have lost my mind a long time ago and gone off on people. And Jason, with love and leadership and integrity, the way that he treats people, even when they attack, even when they do those things, has been an inspiration to my life. Uh, It has been an opportunity for me to see someone follow Christ, put their family and Christ first, be able to lead with that integrity. I cannot emphasize to you enough uh, the relationship he has with the Lord. And so I just want to introduce him. Come on, can we give a welcome to Jason Fountain? Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, Amon. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Ben for this opportunity to come in here today and, and share a little bit. Um, I have been battling a slight cold. I'm going to try not to cough. My kid said, please don't cough and clear your throat and do all that. So I'm, I'm trying to honor that. A uh, couple of quick things. I, I'm calling this an ordinary life today. I'm going to stand over here because I'm going to kind of lead through some things here. But so first, there, here's some disclaimers. I'm not a preacher. I'm not going to attempt to be one. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a fellow pilgrim who has experienced some success in life due to working hard, attempting to follow God's guidance and the support of others. I'm a sinner. Lay that out there. Some of my worst behaviors come out when I'm with my family, particularly my impatience and my selfishness. That's a true story. Amy said, don't put that in there. <clears throat> she, you know, Amy said, don't put that in. There. I, I said, I'm, I'm putting it in there because it's a true story. I don't like it, but it, but it's true. I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I, I'll say that God sees me as his workmanship. He sees me as a saint. He sees me as perfect, not because of anything I've done, but because of his blood. Each day is a new day striving to become the man that God desires for me to become. And on my very best days, I inch forward toward this. So these are my disclaimers. And uh, what, 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 you know, as I sat in the audience the last couple of weeks, listening to Max and Jimmy, I was sitting there thinking, you mean I have to go up there in two weeks and, and share? But 
you know, you, you, you have Max, who is a world-renowned author who's reaching the world for Christ through his pen. And then you have Jimmy, who's the very hands and feet of God going out and touching people around the world and, 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 and doing the work. And, and I feel like, okay, I'm just a simple educator in a very secular environment uh, in a school system. Uh, you know, what, what can I share that is going to resonate with this crowd? But my goal today is not to preach a sermon. Ben does a great job of that every Sunday. My goal is to share lessons that I've learned in 51 years as a fellow traveler on the earth. So a few things have emerged on my journey, and I hope to share with you what God has taught me through the ups and downs of life. This is one of my favorite quotes by Sir and Kierkegaard, where he says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. And, and look, I wouldn't say that I fully understand my life in hindsight, um, but it does give a little bit of, uh, I guess, context to, to kind of what you go through. So I was born in 1971 uh, to Hugh and Gail Fountain. I love this picture because my mother just has the most beautiful smile uh, in this picture. And um, I was born the baby of five kids. And I'm telling you, I was raised in a Christian home. I still can vividly see when I was a little boy, my mom and my dad on their knees at night before they went to bed, praying to God. And uh, I saw their need for God. And that has been the same with me throughout my life. Uh, as, as we've learned in our Wednesday night uh, parenting class, uh, how, how can our kids be passionate about a God that they don't need? So I saw growing up that my parents needed God and, and it, it just made an indelible impact on me. I was born in East Bruton, Alabama. My Alabama's going to come out as I talk. I know it, it's, um, it's right in the middle of the state on the bottom. This picture of me in 1971, uh, that's my dad, that's my, uh, my oldest sister, Kim and Kay and Hugh and Scott. Uh, as I said, I'm the baby of five. This is one of my favorite pictures. Um, th- this is all of us together, and it's a lot of smiles, a lot of, lot of happy people, and, and there I am with that long hair. That's what Jay said. You had some long hair back then. <clears throat> This is another one of my favorite pictures of when I was little. I almost lived a separate life. I had four older brothers and sisters. My oldest sister was 11 years older than me. My next sister, nine. My brother, seven. My brother, five. And then it was me. So in some ways, I was almost like an only child uh, as I grew up. But my sweet mother um, really uh, taught me a valuable lesson when I was very young. This picture, I guess I was probably five, six, seven. I don't know how old I was. But as I kind of go through this, I'm going to share some inflection points. And this was one. My dad and my uncles had an RV. Okay. And it was parked in our backyard. And one day when I was little again, it was just after I had learned to write my name. So I guess kindergarten or first grade. I was out in the yard and I had this idea that I should show everybody how I could write my name. So I found a blue can of spray paint and I walked to the RV and I wrote Jason M. Fountain. I don't know what made me think that that, that, there was anything good about that. but, But I know that I didn't mean to do anything wrong with that because I then promptly went inside and grabbed my mother. And brought her out and show, to show her what I had done. When I brought her out and she looked at the RV, I knew immediately that I had made a big mistake. But what she did after that 
colors my interactions with people today. I'm telling you, it can happen. Because she came out, she did not say one cross word to me that I recall. She went inside, she found some cleaner, and she came out, and she cleaned that RV off. And as clear as day, I can see little Jason standing off to the side, watching my mother do that. Without saying a a cross word to me, she taught me more in that moment about grace, compassion, and love than anything that she could have said. That was an inflection point in my life because I've never forgot it and I think about it often. I love this quote. It's it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's what my mother did. My mother um, impacted us with her actions throughout her whole life. I grew up in the First Presbyterian Church. Now, if the doors were open, we were there. That that was just sort of the way we did it. And you know, a church really becomes the center of a family. And that was certainly our case. But as you know, Presbyterian Church is very formal, strict, almost liturgical. But But still, when I go home to Alabama, when we go there and we go to that church, there's just something that's very comforting to me about that. Of course, I always loved Brother Terry. Whenever he was preaching, he was heating up and he was expecting more amens and he wasn't getting them. He would say, can I get a better amen in this Presbyterian church? And I always loved that. Uh, but, but I love the, the church. So inflection point number two began when I was going into seventh grade. <clears throat> this is Mike Vincent. And I found this picture actually yesterday because I did not have a picture of him. But he became our youth director at our church. So I was going into seventh grade and uh, he, he became our youth director. Now, there's something you have to know about where I grew up. I grew up in East Bruton, Alabama. Well, there's another town called Bruton, Alabama, right across the river. Okay, now this river is called Murder Creek. That's a true story. So you have East Bruton and Bruton. In East Bruton, you have W.S. Neal High School. And in T.R. Miller, uh, and in Bruton, you have T.R. Miller High School. And they're separated by Murder Creek. So every, every year when you have the big football game, it's called the, truly the Battle of Murder Creek. W.S. Neal versus T.R. Miller. Well, this is important because uh, at the First Presbyterian Church, whenever Mike Vincent came there, we were going to the First Presbyterian Church, but it was in Bruton. And there were not many people from W.S. Neal who went to the First Presbyterian Church. We were one of the only families there. So I didn't really like going to the youth group because I didn't really have any of my friends there. But when Mike Vincent came in when I was in the seventh grade, and this is the power of, of people and, and what one person can do. But he took our little ragtag youth group. And as the best people do, he started uh, just getting to know us. And I'm telling you, the afternoons I could get home from school and he would come over and just shoot basketball with me. He never embarrassed us when we were in a Bible study. He just, he just loved us and he cared about us. And it's incredible what that did for us. So I was heavy into the youth group. In seventh grade, he really brought us in. Well, fast forward to two years later to eighth grade. Okay, this kind of uh, takes this inflection point to a different level. I know it's hard to believe as you stare at me today, but I was on an all-star baseball team at one point in my life. Okay, now that's me in the middle and I was in the eighth grade. All right. And uh, I was 13 years old. So we were playing on an all-star baseball team. And this is important because we were playing in a tournament in Niceville, Florida. If we won this tournament, we would get to go to sunny Orlando, Florida, 
to play in the state tournament. But the biggest reason I was excited about that was because Mike Vincent had signed up our youth group to go to Washington, D.C. to Youth Congress 1985. I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted to play baseball. So we play in this tournament. We promptly get stomped the first game. We go to the loser's bracket. We win four straight days. This is what I want my, you know, my one moment of, of sports glory. We win four straight days, and we get to the, to the championship round. We have to beat this team twice. We beat them the first night handily. So we're like, whoo. I mean, we are going to Orlando. I'm not going to Washington, D.C. Well, the next night, we play them, and we get smashed. So I was heartbroken, not so much for losing the game, but because at this point, I knew that I was going to Washington, D.C. to Youth Congress 85. My mother had told me, if y'all win the tournament, you know, obviously you can go to Orlando. If you lose the tournament, you're, you're going on the youth trip. So we get up there, and there's two things that stand out from that. First of all, that is when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, uh, and to think it happened in Washington is, is a pretty cool deal. But the, the other piece to that, that that stands out in my mind so much was on the very last night that we were there. We were going back to the hotel, and Mike uh, wanted us to stop on the on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, and he wanted us to pray. And you have to know where we started when he got there. When I was in seventh grade two years ago, and we would go through through youth group, we would always end with prayer, and he would just allow whoever wanted to to pray. Nobody would pray. We just sat there. Well, we slowly grew in this over these two years. And that night on the steps of the Capitol, I can see it clear as day in my mind's eye. We sat there. He wanted us to pray. People started praying. Everybody was praying. And he had to cut us off. And through a cracked voice, I remember him saying, two years ago I got here and I had no one praying. And, you know, tonight I, we're on the steps of the Capitol in, our, you know, in Washington, D.C. And I'm having to cut off this group so we can get back to the hotel. And it was a special moment because of what he had done. My point in that is the power of one person. One person can make a difference in our lives. And he certainly made a big difference in my life. Well, okay, high school went in a blur. You know, when I start talking about this, I'm just going to move through. There's lots of stories I could tell, but high school went in a blur, and I went to college at Troy State University right up the road. Now, I had no interest really in anything except music in college. I was in every music organization I could be in. I played the trombone, where that's a whole other story. But, but, I, but I was in every, every music organization I could be in. Didn't know what I wanted to do academically, but I ended up getting a, a bachelor's in math. Wasn't even a very, I mean, I was a decent math student, not a very good, didn't know what I was doing, but I had to have a degree. So, so I, I, so I earned this degree. Didn't know what I was going to do in November of 93 when I was graduating, but someone from the Space and Rocket Center up in Huntsville, Alabama was there interviewing for space camp counselor jobs. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So I interviewed for a job and in February of 94, packed my bags and moved to, to Huntsville. So, uh, I, and the funny thing, I remember when I went up there to work at space camp, I didn't know a whole lot about the space program. I just remember when I drove, uh, when I, when I drove to Huntsville, I got there, got on a pay phone cause I was panicking. I called my mother and I said, okay, what date did we land on the moon? I don't want to look like an idiot when I, when I go into this orientation. So anyway, I, you know, I made it through all that. 
I was in Huntsville for about a year and a half. While I was there, I really enjoyed working with the young people. I mean, so many great experiences from my time there. But um, really enjoyed it. Decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to get my education certificate so I can teach. So I went back to school up around Huntsville, earned my certificate. And with a freshly minted certificate in my hand, I took my first job down in Baymanette, Alabama. And um, the, the, the crazy thing about this is that I taught for seven years in the same school, the same subject, seventh grade math, and I, I, I just parked there. And a great thing was I was about an hour from where I had grown up, so no one knew me as little Jason, the baby of five uh, you know, siblings and all that. They just knew me as Mr. Fountain. So it was good for me because I was able to learn what it was like to sort of make my own way and uh, just sort of be independent. So... Needless to say, I did not, after seven years there at 31, I did not expect to still be single. I dated someone fairly seriously in college, knew I was not um, ready to get married, dated a few people while I was in Baymanette, but you're going to see, I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes. The third inflection point in my life, a big year, was 2002. I had been at Baymanette for seven years. I was wanting to try something else. I, I, I was... I, I loved what I had done. I had grown, but I was ready to sort of try something else. So my brother is a college football coach. He knew I was sort of restless. He thought I would like the academic side of college athletics. So he, uh, he encouraged me to go back and try this. So hold on with me here because I'm going to zoom through this, but you're going to see what happened in my life over a five or six year period and how quickly I was going all over the place. But I left Baymanette. I went back to Troy as a graduate assistant. Okay, so this was 2002, uh, of, uh, August of 2002, I went to Troy. Worst three months of my life. Okay, that's a whole other story. But while I was at Troy, they had an opening up in Starkville, Mississippi, for Mississippi State University, working in academic support for student athletes. So, three months later, packed my bags and moved to Starkville. Now, Starkville is a small community. It's a small town that has a large university. Those of you Skip Burtman fans know that Coach Burtman had an aversion in Mississippi State. If you didn't know this, you should. I, I, I heard him speak once and he said the Starkville is so ugly that when he would take the LSU team on a road trip up there, they would pay extra money to get a room without a view. And I, I, you know, I don't know if that's true, but that's what he said. So, but so disregarding Coach Bourbon's assessment of Starkville, I really enjoyed it there. Um, it's a small community, but, but I loved it. But I can tell you, when I went there, I did not know one person. Did not know one person. So I had been there for about six months, and sort of my dream job opened at Florida State. So I applied a lengthy process, and I was hired at Florida State. I started at Florida State one year to the day after I began at Mississippi State. So this is a fast progression here. Now, again, I moved to Tallahassee. I did not know one person in Tallahassee. Okay, very, very challenging. I worked uh, at Florida State with football from December of 2003 until August of 2006. In the summer of 2006, honestly, I was ready to get out of this field, move back somewhere close to home and all that. But a colleague who had worked with me at Florida State was now at LSU. She contacted me and she said, we have an opening down here. I think you'd be a good fit. Why don't you come check it out? So um, after several rounds of interviews, including one, you know, that was a one-on-one with Les Miles, I took the job at LSU. And in August of 2006, I moved to LSU. 
Now, uh, again, when I moved to Baton Rouge, I knew one person. That was the person that had moved from, from Florida State to work at LSU. And I can tell you, I distinctly remember arriving in Louisiana and thinking, I'll probably be here for a couple of years, and then I'm moving back to Pensacola or Bruton, some, you know, somewhere in there. Of course, that was 17 years ago. I've talked about a few inflection points. Well, let me go to number four, the most important one. Inflection point number four occurred on September the 14th uh, of September of uh, 2007. This is when my world was really turned upside down. This is a Friday afternoon. I was in my office and the secretary said, Mr. Fountain, there's a, there, there's, there's a lady here that tutors athletes at a local high school. And she would like to talk with someone about some resources. I said, okay, whatever. And she, and she kind of gave me this knowing wink. She said, you need to meet with this person. So that afternoon, uh, Amy Chapman walked into my office. And um, when, when she came in, I sat up a little straighter, had a difficult time putting coherent sentences together. I don't know what she remembers about the time. But, um, you know, we, we talked. I just remember this very peaceful, confident, uh, self-assured person. I mean, I can remember what she was wearing, you know, all those things. Um, so we chatted about academics for a little bit. And then, uh, as, as we were winding up, you know, I'm, I'm suave and everything. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I said, look, why don't I give you my contact information? So if you have any more questions about academics, you know, we can, you know, we can try to connect. And that's probably why I was still single at 36 with lines like that. I had nothing better than that, but Anyway, uh, so uh, she, she, it, it took a little while, but yes, we finally, I put a little heart there because that's when we, that's when I fell in love. It may have taken her a little longer, but then uh, in March, so this was in September of 07, in March of 08, we had our engagement. And then uh, in October of that same year, 2008, October the 5th, uh, we were married. And, you know, um, after we got married, I was trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Because I'm stuck in Louisiana now. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, the, the work at LSU was much the same as Florida State. It was challenging. It was stressful. It was overwhelming. Uh, LSU did win a national championship in 2007, and I have the ring to prove it. I, I love that picture of sassiness right there. But, uh, but, but anyway, I, I loved what I did, but... But the thrill just couldn't overcome sort of the listlessness and the exhaustion I felt on that job. So now that I knew I was not leaving Louisiana, I pivoted back to the K-12 education space to kind of figure out what I could do. On a whim in July, before we were married, I reached out. I just started looking for any admin jobs open in the area. And... I saw one at Tanglewood Elementary in Central. Now, Amy, of course, grew up in Central. She didn't even know I was, like, trying to reach out. And I just shot a crazy email to the principal at Tanglewood Elementary. And um, that afternoon, she replied back. I went and talked to her. And I was hired. And here I was moving to Tanglewood Elementary. So I went from chasing around 250-pound uh, college athletes who didn't want to do the academics to chasing around, you know, 40-pound first and second graders at Tanglewood Elementary. It was quite a transition for me. But one funny thing, I don't know if y'all know Miss Sharon Browning. Longtime teacher at the high school, longtime board member, just awesome lady. Uh, 
But I'll never forget in December of 2008, when I was approved by the school board in Central to work at Tanglewood, she was the board president. And um, when they announced me, she, she asked me to come up and say a few words. So I said a few things. I'm feeling pretty good. She looked squarely at me and she said, Mr. Fountain, we don't know you. But we know Amy Chapman. And if you're good enough for the Chapmans, you're good enough for us. And I was that is a true story. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into here? But, um, but I was at Tanglewood for about three and a half years as an assistant principal. Then I moved to the middle school as the principal from 2012 to 2016. Then in 2016, I moved to the central office. Now, I really had settled into this role and felt good about the future. And then another crazy event happened. The first superintendent of the Central Community School System, Mike Falk, announced in the summer of 2017 that he was retiring in December of 2017. So I need to preface uh, much of this by saying that I never really had an inherent desire to be a principal. Certainly never had any desire to be a school superintendent. But after much prayer and consideration, and with Amy's full support, I put my name in the hat to be the next superintendent. This is one of our favorite pictures, because uh, this was the day that I dropped off my application at the post office. And I sent this to Amy, and I said, are we really doing this? And I, I, I was very uncertain at the time, but um, throughout the process, I would go through moments of feeling like I could do the job to moments where I wanted to curl up like a baby and just cry. I mean, because it's, it's so overwhelming. What I did know was that God had opened the door. And I, and I just had no choice but to walk through it. That, that's sort of where I was. So after a lengthy process, um, on October 30th, 2017, I was named um, as the superintendent of the Central Community School System. Amy had organized a surprise party at Sammy's. My parents were there. We had two young kids, and life was pretty good. But I want to go back to one more inflection point, which this is number five. But I want to backtrack to 2011 and 2012. Uh, Amy and I had a desire to to start a family. We were born in 2008, uh, but we were married in 2008. But but it just wasn't wasn't happening at that point. We had begun seeing a fertility uh, specialist to determine the issues. And, you know, I've often said what a fertility doctor puts a woman through uh, it's just really difficult. And, you know, the, the emotional swings of could it happen this month? Could, could this be the time? You know, is this what we want? Uh, was just devastating. After 10 failed procedures, I can vividly remember sitting in that doctor's office and him saying, I think y'all just need to take some time and, and maybe, you know, maybe come back in a year and let's talk and kind of see where you are. So we walked out of that meeting that day with this overwhelming sense of loss. And I mean, almost betrayal in a sense, because we, we, it, it just wasn't, wasn't happening. We, we, we just couldn't understand that. From one procedure to the next, we felt like it, it, it was going to happen, but it, but it just never did. God knew the desire of our heart, and the question was, why? why? Why is this not happening? But fast forward to three months later, okay? Now, this is after this, three months later. We're just cruising along here. Uh, we're home one night, and Amy says, I need to take a pregnancy test. And, and I said, what? And... She said, so, so she goes and takes a pregnancy test and, and she comes back and she says, uh, it says I'm pregnant. And I said, no, 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 uh, we're, we're not starting this again. I said, we're going to get another one. So 
We get in the car and drive to CVS without a word. I mean, no radio. No, we're just like, we're just, you know, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. So we drive to CVS, get another test, go home, uh, take the test. And then all of a sudden, this is a picture I took that night after, after we uh, took the test. It clearly said pregnant on there. And uh, three months Uh, I'm sorry, nine months later, we brought little Ainsley Hope Fountain into the world. And then 23 months later, we brought little Jace Chapman Fountain into the world. You know, I love this graphic, uh, but as is probably the case for many of you, when I moved to Louisiana in 2006, I could not have dreamed the very scenario that I'm living in. Finding my wife and joining her wonderful family, having two amazing children who are going to touch the world for Jesus, and being the superintendent of this outstanding school system. I can assure you that if I sat down in 2006 and wrote out a hundred different scenarios of what might happen, none of these would have would have been on the list. I mean, j- just a crazy kind of trajectory. We think life's linear. We have a plan and a goal. And, you know, when we look back, it, it goes many, many different ways. Now, you know how I kind of went from Alabama to Baton Rouge. That's the 20 minute version of how I went from here to here. There's a lot of other stories that, that are really powerful that I can share, but I want to share my journey because since I was 13 years old, God's been shaping and molding me. And he's been growing me into the man that he wants me to become. And I want to, to highlight a couple of threads or themes that, that have kind of emerged through my life. I have um, three of them that I want to share. Theme one is people. You know, guardrails, if you go look up what a guardrail is uh, in, in terms of transportation, it's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limits areas, like bridges, medians, curves. What guardrails really do is they, they direct and they protect and they are designed to minimize damage. When I look back over my life, since I was a young Christian, God's provided strong men in my life to act primarily as guardrails. I love Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. So I'm going to quickly tell you some of these people that have impacted me. I was a, a, a on-fire Christian in ninth grade. I had just gone to Youth Congress. I was a new Christian. My algebra teacher, Stuart Bowden, was at our school for one year. But in that year, he poured so much into us. And, and, and I don't know how, but he, he, he grabbed us. He taught us spiritual disciplines. He did Bible studies. I don't know where he came from, but he was a tremendous guardrail for me in my life. And I had many in high school. I went to college, a very naive individual, and, you know, the wiles of college can can pull you in, and and I certainly didn't live a perfect life in college, but there was one man, Jerry Lawson, who is a strong man. He's a preacher in Birmingham, Alabama now. He was a strong guardrail for me in college. He kept me going. He counseled me in so many different ways. When I went to Huntsville, Ron Crittenden. And again, I don't know where these people came from. I mean, I know God was bringing them into my life. They were guardrails for me. Ron played such an important role for me. When I was in Bay Manette, one of my fellow teachers, Patrick Murphy, um, just 
was a guardrail. He, he, he was a, a, a strong Christian that made such an impact on me. When I went to Starkville, Tyler Hill worked in the athletic department. He did a morning Bible study. He pulled me in. Like these were guardrails. These were, were men that were, that were helping me in, in, in great times and challenging times, which you'll see in my second thread. When I went to Tallahassee, two of my favorite people in the world, and I haven't seen them since I was there, Rob and Connie Simpson. I was a part of a, of a, um, of a singles group, a story of my life. And, uh, they, we would go to their house on Sunday nights and they just poured into us. I mean, they just opened their house to us. They introduced me to Tim Keller for the first time. Just so many powerful things. They were guardrails. When I came to Baton Rouge, um, I found a strong group at First Baptist downtown. I, I was trying to just be, you know, be connected. And then, of course, when Amy walked into my life, um, she just has the purest heart, the most genuine spirit of anybody that I've ever been around. She's been an outstanding guardrail for me as well. And look, I could mention dozens of other men who've made a profound impact on my life. But when I take inventory, it's obvious that God put the right people in my life. And, and I mean, did I always heed the guardrails? No, of course not. Uh, but the guardrails kept me in the correct lane and I'll, and I'll be forever grateful to these people. So my, my question to you is who or what are the guardrails in your life? And more importantly, are, are you heeding them? Me as well. And then how about, are you a guardrail for someone? Never discount the impact that we can make in a very short time on people's lives. That's theme one. Theme two is singleness, or what I called God's silence. And um, the longest, most challenging and defining thread in my life was singleness, without question. As I wound down college, I'd been dating a wonderful girl, but I just knew I was not ready for marriage. Over the next 15 years, as I was growing and advancing in my career, I remained begrudgingly single. And look, the, the worst thing about being single is attending weddings because everybody's like, you next, you next. And of course, people stopped asking me that when I would ask them that at the funerals. But I mean, uh, you, you just, during this time, I went through ups and downs, okay? I was not a depressed, unhappy person, but I longed for a wife. One of the things that I did was I kept a journal sporadically over the years. And... Um, on Christmas Eve, for a number of years, I would just sit down at my parents by the fire on Christmas Eve after everybody was going to bed, and I would just list things from the prior year. And it's a little painful to share this, but I'm going to show you because for a number of years, you can see what one of the themes, and this is one piece of what I was writing about. But So let's go to 12-24-1997. I'm so ready for a wife and family. 12-24-98. When will I have a wife and family to share Christmas with? What must it feel like to have kids? Twelve twenty four ninety nine. Will I ever marry? Who will my wife be? Where is she tonight? What is she experiencing? Twelve twenty four two thousand. When will I meet my wife? Twelve twenty four two thousand and one. I do long for my wife. This time next year, I hope and plan to either be married or know who I will marry. Twelve twenty four oh two. Well, I finally have a wife as I write next year. 12-24-03. As always, I wonder if I'll find my wife in 2004. Where's my wife right now? And the last one I recall writing, which really it was appropriate, it says, I'll not belabor the point, but will I find my wife this next year? 
2005. Another really painful journal entry that I went back and looked at was New Year's Eve morning of 2004. And this was uh, when I was in Jacksonville, Florida. I was working at Florida State. They were playing in the Gator Bowl. The Gator Bowl was on New Year's Day. So they, for all the people that worked there, we had a hotel and so forth. So I was there. I got up that morning and um, I was just in one of those moods. And here's what I wrote. It's painful, but this is the truth. Would depressed be the word or lonely? Since I've been here, I've thought about how much fun it would be to have my wife with me to hang out with. I'm sick of living my life alone. The way I feel today is the way I felt over and over in my life. While others are living their life with a companion and magnifying their experiences, I'm just filling my life with meaningless activities, especially work. And, you know, I always, and and I thank the Lord for this, but I, I always would end my laments like this, as I did this time, where I said, I ask God to strengthen me today and wrap his loving arms around me and let me know that he is all that I need, but I must find my wife now. Don't let this feeling go away. (laughs) It's just the ups and downs, people. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But uh, of course, it would be nearly three years before Amy would, would walk into my life. One of the biblical characters that I most just just really connect with, and particularly, I think, through my singleness years, Joseph. Um, I mean, essentially, you know, he was just a mess. And this, there's so many great things. And I want to tell you, Tim Keller has an amazing sermon series called The Gospel According to Joseph. You should find that and listen to it. It's a four-part, but it's amazing. And I just, I've listened to that so many times over the years, particularly when I was single. But, you know, but Joseph was an arrogant young man. The family was a mess. God literally had to upend the family. And of course, Joseph was sold into slavery. Stories full of life lessons. But, my, but the biggest takeaway for me in the life of Joseph is that God's silence does not equal God's absence. And there were a number of years that um, I felt God's absence. And you know, four times in this story of Joseph... And, and look, what I love about the story is nothing supernatural happens directly. God does not throw a lightning bolt or does not come down and heal somebody or any of that. But what it says four times throughout the story is the Lord was with Joseph. And if, if nothing else, I felt that throughout my years. I mean, I, you know, there are things I wanted, but I did feel that, that, that God was with me. I felt that. And you know what God was doing in the life of Joseph, and I know he was doing in my life, was he was arranging and ordering. He was arranging an ordering. And I think that that's such a, such a key component. We can't understand what God's doing in our lives, but we also have to know that he's arranging and he's ordering. Really one of the sustaining verses through this time for me was Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Look, people love to throw that out to single people. Where it said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. But 12 and 13 added different component of that where it says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I remember very clearly one time um, in the late nineties, I was on a bus on a, on a, on a charter bus with my dad and men from his church, from the Presbyterian church. And we were going to a promise keepers conference in new Orleans. And I remember going down the road and I was thinking about my singleness and blah, blah, blah. And 
all of a sudden, I just felt impressed upon my heart. I just felt the Lord say, when, when you love me with all your heart, I will give you your wife. I don't know if that was from God or not, but I, but I felt it and I, and I held on to that for years. But you know what? One fallacy that, that we have in our Christian wall is treating God as a transactional God. And if we do something for him, he'll do something for us. And, and believe me, I pray to God, just show me how to love you with all my heart. I will do it. Just show me how to do that. And, 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 and I think he did. But actually what he showed me over time in really years was that I didn't need a wife. I needed him. So again, he was arranging and ordering and preparing me for the future that he had for me. And look, if he had never given me a wife, he was still a sovereign God and he still had a plan for my future. I I know that. I know that. I don't share my struggles with singleness for anyone to feel sorry for that time in my life. I was living a good life, a strong life. I was happy and I was fulfilled. But I also knew what I wanted. Three lessons that I take from from singleness and really the life of Joseph, and and I just sort of feel like I parallel with that in some ways. What looks like weakening is really strengthening. You know, when when I was hurting and I was longing for a wife and a family, I wasn't becoming weaker. I thought I was, but God was actually growing me and making me more resilient and stronger throughout this process. You know, it's like when you go to the gym and you're lifting weights, you, you do feel weaker, but then... Your muscles, as they tear down, they grow back stronger. And there's something about this resilience that, that God teaches us when we feel like that, that we're, we're weak. And, and, you know, but we're actually growing in our strength. The second thing was when trouble happens, don't look outside, look inside. There were many times I wanted to look outside and try to fix it or do whatever. My singleness forced me to decide once and for all where my true joy, hope, and identity resided. It was not another person. It was in Jesus Christ. I'd settled in my heart that I would never marry just to marry. I, I, had made a, I had made a strong commitment early in my life. I would not marry until it was the right person. Unless I met the woman that God had for me, I was content, not happy, but I was content to stay single. Thirdly, be assured that God has a dream for my future. The truth was that I didn't need a wife. I said this. I needed a God who I trusted in. So whether or not I would have ever crossed paths with Amy Chapman. He was enough. I know that deep within my heart. Our God's big enough. And he has a spectacular plan for our life. Whether it's giving us what we want or not. So my question to you is, what's your singleness? You have something. It's probably not singleness, but it's something. And my question is, can you trust God with it? Because that's the real question. I love, you know, Max mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I love this phrase. And look, I've said this. God could have very easily chosen not to give me a wife. He could have very easily chosen not to allow us to have kids. But Max talked about John the Baptist when when he spoke. And think about what happened to him. No human had lived a better life. The scriptures say so. He was eternally faithful, loyal, and loving toward God. And what happened? He was beheaded. Can we follow what Jesus said when John the Baptist's followers asked him to save John? Jesus said, blessed is the man who is not offended by me. I was offended. I mean, honestly, there there were times in my life when we've all been there. I was offended because I wasn't getting what I I wanted. and, And also what I thought God wanted for me. But blessed is the one who is not offended. 
Can we praise God even in the bad times, even when things are not going the way we want them to? And finally, I think about this. Psalm 23, 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I just think about this all the time. I think about, like, I love life. I mean, I love mornings. I love seeing a sunrise. I love seeing a sunset. I love people. I love just just living life, seeing my kids grow up. My cup overflows. And Jesus, like, think about this life on earth as, as hard as it is, but but how glorious it is. But my cup overflows. God gave us Jesus. That's all we had to have. But think of all the other blessings that we have every single day, no matter what we're going through. So I, so I love that verse. Theme three, and I'm coming in from my landing, is I just call the glorious journey. And I, I titled this message, An Ordinary Life. But really, I think it's been an extraordinary life. And not because of anything I'm, I've done. The, the truth is that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior in Washington, D.C. in 1985... God grabbed hold of me and he's never let go. I don't think I could get away from him if I wanted to. I mean, it's, 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 it's been so, it's so entrenched in my, in my world. And, you know, I've, I've heard it said one time, glancing versus gazing. I, I want to encourage each of us to embrace our life on this earth, the good and the challenging. But to do that, we have to spend time gazing at our Savior. Too often we glance. I mean, we glance. I glance at my wife. I glance at my kids. I, I glance at just everyday life. I glance at the Father. I, I glance at God. When was the last time we gazed at God? When was the last time we spent time down at the feet of the almighty God of the universe and just gazing on him? That's what he wants us to do. Because as we do that, he's going to make us what he wants us to be. He's going to help us to accept whatever it is that he wants us to have. That's what it's about. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. He's saying, wonder and worship. Gaze. Gaze upon this God that has done so much for all of us. I I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. And it's deep. But he says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul. The incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. In which we shall still desire on our deathbeds. When the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. The reason we have to spend time gazing at our Savior is so we can reach the point where we can join with John Wesley's covenant prayer. I don't know if you've seen this, but this just touches me every time I read it. But he said, and, and look, you can't say this normally. I mean, you, you've got to gaze on the Father in order to be able to, to say this. But he says, I'm no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. 
And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. You can't say that. I can't say that most days. But when I'm gazing at the Father and I, and I feel that, that closeness, I can say that. Whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want, truly. Whatever you have for me is what I want. So, as I close, I want to say this. Amy didn't love this picture. But I love this picture because uh, we went to an LSU game right at the end of the year. And I want to thank Amy for being the love of my life. She came into my life. Uh, I didn't, I mean, seriously, at this point, I'm 36. And I'm like, yeah, I probably won't ever get married. Uh, but she's more than I ever hoped for. She's more than I could ever imagine. And I love you, Amy. But I also want to close by saying this. Before I close in prayer, I want to say I must confess that as I worked through this message today, I really did it for two people. And that's Ainsley and Jace. Uh, I want them to know that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And that God has a beautiful plan for each of your lives. And I love you too very much. So let me close this in prayer. Um, I hope my rambling uh, made, made some sense. Um, but I, but I love the Lord and I, and I, and I love this church and I, and I, I thank Ben for the opportunity to come up here. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for this church and what it means to everybody here. Um, Lord, help us to just spend time gazing at you. And Lord, help us to realize it's, it's not about what we want. And no matter if we never get what we desire, you're still worthy of praise. You're, you still have a glorious plan for our life. And besides anything else, you gave us Jesus. So we're going to live with you for eternity, no matter what happens on this short time on the earth. We just thank you for everybody in this crowd, Lord. I pray that, that um, whatever everybody's singleness is, Lord, that 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 they'll just turn it over to you, Lord. Trust you, know you, gaze at you, and allow you to work in their hearts, Father. We just love you, and we just thank you for everything. Guide and direct our week. Um, and we just thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're just...